Well, hey, good to see everybody. Would you turn in a Bible to the book of Luke, which is toward the second half? We're going to be in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look at perhaps one of, surely top three, of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told. Before we get there, I'll remind you that we have been reading, most of us, some of us, a book called The Unvarnished Jesus by Brian Zond. And so we've been talking about these readings, some of them, and we've been talking about the theme of removing some of the layers or even misconceptions that have accumulated over our picture of Jesus and his way. Some layers we've inherited, others we've discovered along the way, and some have just creeped in from our culture. And so what we've been saying each week is that not all layers need removing. Some foundational truths about who Jesus is and what he's called us to do, but I do think that all layers need examining. Jesus is too surprising and compelling to stop seeking and finding, so the hope is that as we're reading and engaging with these texts and these sermons and throughout our week of reflection, that we would come to see Jesus more clearly, which is also why we've been asking these two questions. The first is, all right, what's the varnish that might need removing from our image of Jesus in his way? And in what ways is Jesus inviting us to see him more clearly this week? Jason asked and answered these questions last week. I've asked and answered these questions with a nifty slide each week, and I'm not doing that this evening. I'm not going to answer them directly for you tonight. I want you to listen to this famous story, and I want you to open yourself up to how some of these layers and varnishes have crept up in your own life, and I'll leave you to connect some of those dots. But what if some of the layers are innate and internal? What I mean is that what if some of them, nobody exactly told you and sat you down and said, hey, God is like this or like that. What if you have filled in your own blanks in subconscious ways because our brains always do this? I'll talk about that more later. But because we love stories, so often we connect dots and tell ourselves stories that guide and shape the way we move in the world. The stories or narratives we tell ourselves about God sometimes creep in and we can't allow ourselves to truly believe, perhaps, that God is as gracious, loving, and forgiving as we sang about, or as we read about, or as we hear about, because there's something innate within us that is connected dots that maybe lead us to believe we're not lovable. Or as Jason reminded us last week, maybe there's grace for that guy, but is there enough grace for me to go around? And maybe I can show myself grace, but that person definitely doesn't have enough grace to go around. Maybe we struggle with these false narratives or varnishes because we can't truly allow ourselves to believe that God is gracious, loving, and forgiving. So Jesus has a better story for us. It's a varnish-removing story. Removing varnishes of 
images of the Father that are not precisely the Father that Jesus knows. Removing varnishes of unwelcome for others. Removing varnishes of self-righteousness. Removing varnishes of God's posture towards sinners. So we're in Luke 15, and it's a cycle of stories that Jesus tells, but the when matters. When Jesus tells, it matters. Make note, every time you're reading the Gospels, when matters. This story we're going to look at is only found in Luke, but there are other stories and glimpses of the life and teachings of Jesus, but where the writers put them matters. When it happens in the story matters. And the setting for where Jesus tells this story matters because the setting is at a dinner table. Now the tax collectors and sinners, we're told, were all gathering around to hear Jesus. I love that phrase in the Gospels. They gathered around Jesus. Who did? Tax collectors and sinners. Do you think those that would be outcast or demonized in our culture are as apt to gather around Jesus' people as they were around Jesus when he lived and walked the streets of Galilee. There's something about the presence of Jesus that is inviting to even tax collectors and sinners. When and where matters. Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So then Jesus tells some stories. He tells three stories all about something that is lost, that is found, and then celebrated. Sheep that were lost, found, celebrated. A coin that was lost, found, celebrated. But the thing about sheep and coins is that they can be picked up and drug back to where they belong. What happens when a person or persons are lost? Let's hear Jesus' famous story, now jumping down to verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So imagine the father selling off his land, making it liquid, giving him a fat stack of cash, and dividing it up between them. Older brothers should have gotten two-thirds per Deuteronomy. But the younger brother got his share, and what does he do? Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there what? squandered his wealth in what? Wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He was at such rock bottom in verse 16 that he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would even give him anything. So when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out 
and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. That means his father was looking for him. And he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now imagine the father claps his hands together and says, No, no, no. Quick, servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. The fatted calf is that thing that was being groomed and cultivated for a big party. Like a wedding. Or perhaps this homecoming. For this son of mine was dead... And is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Lost, found, celebrated. Jesus continues, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing and the bass pumping. So he called, just making sure you're listening. Because I know you've heard this story. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Uh, your brother has come. He replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. He thinks the guy needs a stern lecture and instead he's got a raging party. So then his father goes out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he can't even like call him my brother. When this son of yours, who has squandered your property, watch out, with prostitutes comes home. You killed a fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and now celebrated. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for not only Jesus' words, but Jesus' way of breaking down barriers between our own hearts and you, between our neighbors and one another. Lord, would you help us and use this story to help us to see you more clearly, our good and gracious Father. Amen and amen. Shame researcher and author and speaker, Brene Brown, tells this story in her Netflix talk, Call to Courage. 
you got Netflix. She does a talk. She's not a stand-up comedian. It's called Call to Courage. Pretty awesome. Check it out. And you're going to hear the abridged version of a story she tells about a family vacation to Lake Travis. Brene Brown is a Texan and professor, and she was at this place for a long time, one of those good restorative vacations. She's feeling good, and they're swimming in a cove early in the morning, just she and her husband. And so she's been feeling so good, so restored, and she tells us that she's not usually the one that kind of puts herself out there, even though she writes and talks about vulnerability and connection. But she was feeling so good in that cove on that early morning that she looks at her husband and she says, I feel so connected to you. I am so glad we got to do this together. You know the, the vibe. I'm just, mm, this is good. His response, yep, water's great, as he turns around and paddles away. So she tells this story on her Netflix special. She says, you know, I was thinking, because I don't share so much, he was so overcome by my putting myself out there and love that, you know, he could hardly process it, so he had to swim away to go compose himself. So they're swimming, and then a little while later, she decides that she's going to reach out and make another connection. So this time, she's a little bit closer to him. She looks at him, and she says, again, I feel so connected to you. I love you. It is so good that we're here. I'm glad we get to do this together. And again, he looks at her and says, water's good, and turns and treads away. This point, she has a very different reaction. Now she's convinced that he's not overcome with love and the same vibes that she has. She starts to fill in the blanks. And she talks about how she would do this research, and after all these interviews, there was a phrase that kept coming up, but it wasn't up enough that it registered with her, that she wrote about it a lot. But upon reflecting on this moment with she and her husband, she was thinking about this phrase that kept coming up. And the phrase is, the story I'm telling. The story that she is telling in that moment in the cove in Lake Travis is, he must have looked at me after I put myself out there and thought, wow, 25 years so much has changed. This can't be the same woman I married. She starts filling in the blank and telling herself a story. I knew I shouldn't have packed that Speedo that I don't really quite fit into. She starts to think, maybe, maybe he's going to tell me he wants a divorce while I'm sitting here in a cove in Lake Travis. So the question is, what's the story you're telling Eventually, she realizes after pushing him that he was fending off a panic attack because he was the only strong swimmer of the other dads and he was so worried about that weekend swimming with six kids in his care going across 30 feet of deep water and all the boats and it was all he could do to just count strokes 
and keep his head literally and figuratively above water. But there was a story that she was telling because as she tells us, we're story-shaped people, we're narrative people, and so when we connect the dots, we do it because we want to explain the unexplainable when there's a communication breakdown or perhaps when we're trying to live with an unseen God. We connect dots. What's the story you're telling? We do this in communication breakdowns. We do this in conflicts. What's the story that you're telling when you feel that disconnect, that impasse? In fact, this afternoon, there was a moment that Amy said something that after really digging and unearthing, we both realized, I realized, oh, she didn't mean that at all, but the damage was already done. She said something kind of like offhanded, but the way it hit, the way it registered, and the way I filled in the beginning, middle, climax, and end was something that sent me down or threatened to send me down. Yeah, she, yeah she's right. I'm oh, just always, oh, why did, what's the story? I had an opportunity to literally practice what I preached like three hours ago. (laughs) And it led to a really good conversation and good resolution. And it just leads me to think if we can barely handle it just one-on-one with the people we know the best, how can we not realize that perhaps we filled in some blanks with an unseen God, bigger than we could ever imagine and comprehend, What are the dots that we filled in when we're trying to be seen and feel loved by a God we can't see? The first step in your relationships, I'll offer you, is awareness. Because I put this in my outline and knew I was going to talk about what story I'm telling, as I start to tell myself one of those tired old tapes in my head about how wrong I am and I'll never do this right, I began to say, oh, wait, that's one of those stories I'm about to go talk to my people about. The first step is awareness. Because if you can't name it, you can't tame it. If you don't know it, you can't really work with it. So the first step is awareness, and then the second step is examination. Is that really true? Did he really think, boy, 25 years, a lot's changed. Ugh. First step is awareness. The second step is examination, or shall I say, unvarnishing. What's the story that you're telling in your relationship with an unseen God? The story in Luke 15 is that a sinner, as Jason so well said last week, sinners are not just people who did something morally wrong. Sinners in the New Testament is a term for the people that have separated themselves from the community from some way or another. So a tax collector was a sinner, and sinners were sinners because they've gone off the path of the communal law and the communal esprit de corps. These tax collectors are collaborators with the enemy. Sinners equals separate. So even if sinners were allowed to come, like the tax collector in the story Jason told, to the temple, they were there, but they weren't really there. They were an outcast. So the story that the Pharisees are telling is a sinner is someone separate, which means there's no seat for them at God's table because they have no seat at our table. 
We can abide by them if they're in the back seat of the church, the back seat of the temple, but we really can't have fellowship with them because they're not like us. That's the story they're telling. Maybe our story is, yeah, I'm the younger son. I've blown it so bad to approach a holy God. I've blown it so bad that I better avoid dad because I had that bad report at school. And the sooner that I see him, the sooner I'm going to get a stern talking to. I've blown it. I can't approach a holy God. Or maybe you're the older son, the achiever, who's done everything right, but you just can't shake the feeling that it's never good enough. What's the story that I'm telling when I sin? One of the things that Amy and I have tried to do as parents, and I learned this from Amy the moment we found out we were pregnant, with her child development background and degree, she says, we will never say you are bad. We will say you've made a bad choice. We will say you made a great choice. But they are not bad. But the innate story, when I make a bad choice, man, I connect that dot so fast to say, I'm bad. Gosh. Same crap I'm writing in my journal at this age is the same stuff I was writing in my journal in my struggles when I was 16. I'm bad. It's not that I did a bad choice or I sinned. What's the story you're telling? What's the story you're telling when you did a good thing? <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. You see that, God? What's the story you're telling when you're inconsistent in your spiritual practices, in your Lenten journey? What's that story you're telling? What's the story you're telling when you're not doing enough? I should be serving, I should be doing, I should make that phone call, I should finish that. Why can't I do this? What's the story you're telling when you have a disagreement and you say, oh, that's because God's on my side and I'm right, they're wrong. They're separate. What is the story you're telling when you encounter that person or that situation or that moment of difficulty? You can read it all. You can have stacks of books that talk about faith and trust and God and the valley and the struggle no matter what. But when the struggle happens, what's the story? What's the first thing that starts playing in your head? What's the story you're telling? What's the story I'm telling? We know that we're formed through spiritual practices especially when they're rooted within a spiritual, healthy community. We get it. I learned to pray by praying, to give, to fast, to pray, to do the Lent stuff. There's something that decentralizes me and allows myself to be acted upon. If I said, how do you grow in your faith, you would probably tell me something like, do church stuff and be with church people. Yes? You are who you, I was about to say, uh, like, you are who you hang out with. You are what you eat. Here's the deal. Do we ever stop and think about the central piece of the growth puzzle that often gets overlooked? What's the story you're telling? James Bryan Smith in his book, The Good and Beautiful God, which is fantastic. Get it? We did a class on this years ago. I happened to pull it off my shelf because I knew he talked about prodigal son stuff. And like page four or five right there, this is so good 
that we need to spend a moment. I get the bottom part of the triangle, engaging in soul training, adopting practices that allow us to be acted upon by God. Yes, got it, check. You talk about this all the time. We just did the create space core practice and the serving and whatever. Yeah, good. Okay, how about participating community? Okay, I can do church stuff and I can do it with church people. You are who you hang out with. I'm gonna dialogue, serve, and I'm gonna share with others on the Jesus way. I get it. Stay connected. We get that. You might even get the center point that it's all animated and shaped and guided by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that is working and interceding and moving and sanctifying and growing. It's not just you. It's your participation, your openness to the very living God who's with you. But I've got to tell you, that if you're not adopting the narratives of Jesus and you still got distorted stories, you're gonna be distortedly formed. We have to exchange our false ideas about God and neighbor for the God who looks like Jesus. So what Jesus is doing in telling us this story is he's challenging the actual problem of people who are unwilling to welcome and eat with sinners because their narrative is that God would never welcome and eat with sinners. So what Jesus does in telling this story is practice what he preaches by saying, here's the lost people, I've found them, I'm celebrating right now, why are you objecting to my dinner party? They have a narrative that says we earn it. And then he goes out and says, just follow. And then we have this narrative that says God would never eat with sinners. And the last thing Jesus leaves his followers and says, do this with everyone else all the time is a freaking meal for sinners. And we walk around and we beat our breasts like the tax collector and there's a healthy attitude of self-examination. I realize I am off the path and he says, yes, but if your story is Jesus wagging his finger at you and saying you blew it again, you idiot, that is a false narrative. Jesus is one who is full of grace and truth. And he's not pointing down at you. He's lifting you up. He's calling you up. He's saying we're walking together. The yoke is easy because I'm on the other side. Come to me. You've blown it. You're burned out. I get it. Yes. That's why I died for you. That's why you're supposed to taste it, hear it, remember it, walk it. Stop with the narratives that say I'm exacting and angry. Shame is not a fruit of the Spirit. Conviction, a calling up. But if it's calling out and you feel worse and it leads you to do something like Judas does instead of what Paul says leads you to lean hard on the kindness of God, you got to examine that. A distorted narrative distort our formation. If God the Father loves me when I'm good and punishes me when I'm bad. Okay, let's take that as an example. What's my motivation? If God loves me when I'm good and punishes me when I'm bad. What's my motivation? Is it a reward 
or an avoidance of pain and discipline? Or is it a loving relationship that gives shape and animates my life? What's my self-image? Am I a dirty, rotten scoundrel or a forgiven sinner embraced by grace? What's my understanding of God's love? It's conditional as long as I do the right stuff. Or is it unconditional? Because while we were yet sinners, he loved us even then. So Jesus tells us a story of a God who loves his children, whether they did everything right and stayed home, or a father who loves his child who did everything wrong and blew it in the worst way. The father loves and invites both to the party. And to miss this is to adopt a false narrative and a false story and you'll never go and love your neighbor because you won't even be able to love yourself. So the problem with the younger brother, the younger son, is that he forgot who he was. He was a son of a father And the problem with titles is that this is famously called the prodigal son. We said this in our prayer time. Leilani said to a gracious father who's a prodigal God. What does that word prodigal mean? In our culture, you hear it like every week. The prodigal son is returned. And maybe you think the context is somebody that goes a long way. Do you know what the word prodigal means? Not quite, no. That's what the cultural connotation is. Prodigal means reckless spender, squandering. The younger brother forgot who he was. We call him the prodigal son. And yeah, he squandered it. But God squandered it first. God handed him a bag of cash and risked handing a blessing to a son who might just forget that he belongs to the father and that his way in his house is where the life is. So the prodigal God gave everything to a son who would reject that love and forget who he was. So we replace our false narrative with the better story that even after all of that, when the son comes home, the father can't even let him get his speech out because he's muffled in his embrace. Because he can't talk because his father is kissing him. Except that we are accepted. That's the invitation. And dare to believe that so is your brother. So save your speech and just surrender to the embrace. You're not too far off to start heading back home. So the question is, are we coming to the party or not? Jesus tells this story and we're all conditioned throughout the biblical story because Adam had two sons and the younger one did the right thing. Then Abraham has two sons and the younger one was the child of blessing. Isaac had two sons and Jacob was the one that received the blessing. We're conditioned to identify with the younger son as blessed. 
And Jesus challenges this view at the beginning because he does all the wrong things. And what is the Bible also a story of? People who are blessed and supremely broken. And the father accepts them. He still blessed Isaac. He still blessed Jacob. He still blesses the younger son. He still blesses you. And so the wayward son finds himself in a foreign land. Listen, pigs is a thing that a lot of commentators make a, a big deal of. It wasn't a sin to touch a pig. It was a sin to touch a dead pig, like butcher him, and it was a sin to eat pig. He could be among them, but it's a way of saying he's in a place, he's in a situation no self-respecting person would be in. And by the way, he's in a far country, so he has no family, no support, no support network, no friends. He is a long way off. It's a way of saying had he stayed close to home, maybe he could follow God's way with God's people. Because the Bible is a story of a wayward son who's... Stuck in a foreign land, but a reconciling father is ready to bring them back from exile and throw a party. This is the story. This is the Pharisee's story, waiting for the party, waiting for a return from a foreign land, waiting from a long way off with no support. This is their story, and they're missing it. But the younger brother did not forget that it was his story for long. The way Jesus tells it is, he came to himself. The alarm clock went off in his heart, and he said, this isn't me. I don't eat pig slop at home. What am I doing? And so he practices his speech, but he does something even better. He actually takes a step back toward the father, because he remembered that just maybe his father would take him back. He's still having a story that says, I may not be a son, but this is what's powerful. When the father says, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the shoes, you know who didn't wear shoes? The servants. His best story was, maybe I can be a servant. He says, uh-uh, no, 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 shoes. I'm, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Uh-uh, family ring. Oh, I can't. I was with pigs. Finest robe. This is who you are. This is why Kelly's saying, I am who you say I am. This is the story that we need to tell ourselves. Oh, I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. This has always been who God is. This has always been what God does. This is what God was doing right there in their midst through Jesus. Of course it's worth celebrating, so why are you objecting? That's because they're an older brother, and the problem with the older brother is that they forgot whose they are. I need you to understand this, because this is something that I needed to deal with this week. Jesus is not correcting Jewish ideas about God. Jesus came and thank goodness he did because those Old Testament people and those Jewish people, they thought they had to earn it all. No, no, no. God has always been slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Where did we learn that? The Old Testament. God has always been reconciling sinners because we read Psalm 40, sacrifices and burnt offerings you don't require. You just want us to come home. This is a Jewish idea. 
Jews told a parable in the rabbinic teachings called Midrash that was basically their version of a prodigal son. And it's so beautiful because it tells a story of a king had a son and he went on a journey for a hundred days. And after a long time, his friends said, hey, you need to go back home to your father. And he says, no. And then all of a sudden in the rabbinic story, it shifts and it says, God says, come home. He says, I can't, it's too far. And then God says, come as far as you can. I'll go the rest of the way. This is a Jewish idea. Jesus didn't come and say, hey, actually, God's nice. Jesus comes and says, this is what he's always looked like. You guys keep telling the story and getting the story wrong. You guys keep telling a story in yourself that it's all about the law and it's all about this. It was always about trust in relationship. God has always been looking and longing as a father. So the invitation for you again is that you might internalize the image of who God truly is. He's not penny-pinching. He's prodigal. He'll squander it all on you. God's not cold and unapproachable. He's looking at the horizon. You go as far as you can. I'm running. My goodness and mercy is chasing you down. God is joyful and ready to welcome his wayward children. So why aren't you coming to the party? This is the question. Proximity, we learn from the older brother, does not equal relationship. The Pharisees had everything they needed. And they were close. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn and are poor in spirit, they're actually closer within reach. Because proximity we learn to church and to the good stuff does not equal that it's being internalized and the narratives aren't taking root. This is a dangerous game. The word in the story for the father urging him, asking him, is a word that is a shade of what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. The word that Jesus uses, or how they translate it in Greek, is parakleo, which is to urge comfort. And that's what he does. He urges, come in and celebrate with me. And he comforts, I've always loved you. You have everything you need in me. Listen, Jesus isn't just telling the Pharisees this story to like mic drop and shut them down. He's speaking to the older brothers to say, I've always loved you. Don't earn what's been given. Everything I have is already yours. Listen, you have everything you need to live this life. You have everything you need to parent that kid. You have everything you need to love that person, to forgive that person. Everything I have is already yours. So maybe it's not an issue of whether or not he's given it. Maybe it's an issue of whether or not we're receiving it. So the story ends. And the story ends because both sons were lost. One got found and he's inside partying. And the other brother is left outside, and we're wondering, is he ever going to accept that he's accepted? Is he ever going to internalize that he's invited? You see, both sons were lost, 
And it's at that moment that we realize that both sons were loved and sought and reconciled to their father. The father doesn't go out to the far country, but he goes outside of the front porch to seek the brother who was lost because he couldn't dare to believe that the story is too good to be true. Will the younger brother stay and behave? I don't know. Will we? Will the older brother adopt a new narrative and join the party? I don't know. Will we? Will the father ever stop loving, looking, and inviting? We know the answer to this. No. I want to read 2 Corinthians 5, and then we'll be done shortly. It's not on the screen, so would you hear these words? If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Has that already happened? He reconciled us to himself through Christ. Hmm. It seems to me that God has a single disposition toward brothers and daughters and sisters. His side of the street is clear. Are you reconciled to God? Does God have it out for you? The answer is no. Paul says, there's still people who haven't received it though. So he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. But here's the thing, I, I, I skipped this part. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. You were reconciled to God 2,000 years ago on a Friday when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, and it is finished. God has a single disposition to sinners, and that is one of forgiving, unrelenting, unwavering, inviting you back home love. The message and the mission is that we go out because there's a whole lot of brothers and sisters out there that are a far way off, and they're eating pig slop, and they don't know that the party is here in God's arms. But the arms of God are outstretched so that every single person, that whosoever will may come, has a seat at the table. The question is whether or not they're going to RSVP and come back home. That's the question. There is a big difference between God reconciling himself to you when you come home versus you having to reconcile yourself to God. God has already reconciled himself to you. He loves you, and if you don't believe me, Paul says it literally a dozen other places. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Where was God when Jesus was crucified? Reconciling the world to himself. What about our sins? Not counting our sins against them. The problem with gifts is you gotta open it up and receive it. The party's waiting. Are you coming home? Be reconciled to God. God has reconciled himself to you. Have you reconciled yourself to God?
And I know that we can even disagree with semantics there. Obviously, this is Christ's work, and you're just saying yes and amen. I'm not saying that you do it all on you. No, no, no. What I'm saying is there's an invitation for you to come back home, say yes to him. This is the invitation. It's settled. It's reconciled. God's hand is extended. He has a single disposition towards sinners, and that is one of unrelenting love. And to not come to the party is to experience that love in a way that you don't want to experience it. Because his love is an unquenchable fire, and it's going out with the world, and you don't want to go against the grain of it. You want to be swept up and partner with it. You want to be an older brother or a younger brother. You want to be somebody that's in that party because it's worth celebrating. Years ago, our friend from Russia and I were driving through a neighborhood of a friend that we both knew in common. And this friend wasn't a Christian anymore and had run proverbially a long way from home. And he was asking about this person saying, yeah, yeah, and this and this and yeah, and I mean, yeah, yeah. And I was hemming and hawing, and he listened dutifully. And he realized that I was kind of talking like, yeah, that's it, man. He's a far country, bro. He squandered it all. And with a smile on his face, he says, no, no, no. He says, the father hasn't unadopted him. He adopted him. The problem is that his child is just forgetting because he's a long way from home. God is still looking and longing for him. God is still looking and longing for you. And you may have done all the right things and you're sitting right there. But remember that whoever you are, you're loved and longed for and that the Father is forever waiting at home, looking to the horizon, ready to run to meet you and embrace you. So surrender and save the speech and just come home to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus told us that the prodigal son came to himself. May the spirit of the living God wake us up to ourselves and to the nearness of a good shepherd who invites us back into the fold of God. May we be set free from the illusion of an angry and withholding father. For how much greater is the God that we have than the one who we thought we had? So go from this place, freed and found by the reconciling, radically generous love of God, who's ready to celebrate every long-lost sibling who makes their way back home. Go in peace.